you don't know me, my name is Sam. I'm the family pastor here at Fellowship. Thank you for joining us this morning. We're in the book of Exodus, and we are talking this morning about worship. But before I get into that, if you know me, um, something that I'm doing right now in my life is I am pursuing my Master's of Divinity online. So working through school, they said your undergrad would be it. Nope, that's true. There's still more to go. Uh, so I'm still studying, still studying. But um, something that I think is true about all of us and that all of us can relate to is that whether it is school or whether it is work or whether it is just the responsibilities we have in our lives, there are things that we both want, to, there's things we want to do, and then there are things we don't want to do. There are things that are joys to do in our jobs and in our schooling. There are assignments we like. Uh, and then there are assignments or things in our job or in our life that we don't like to do, things that maybe more feel uh, like a burden, uh, something we just kind of have to get through. Um, I remember when I was growing up, one of these for me, I was, uh, I liked to mow. I was one of those weird kids. I liked to mow. I really enjoyed it. And we had a push mower. We didn't have a ride mower. Um, I liked to mow. But I did not like to weed eat or do anything else. And so I remember I would barter with my dad. I'd say, I will mow and trim the hedges and this and this and this if you don't make me weed eat. It was just one of those things I didn't like to do. But we all have those things. We all have those things that feel like a burden to us. And this Sunday and next Sunday, we are talking about the topic of worship. And I think we need to talk about worship because I think worship, because we as Christians worship so often together and on our own at home, Sometimes worship can feel burdensome. It can feel like something that we just have to do. It's the thing we have to check off. All right, we went to worship, or all right, did this at my house. Um, Worship can feel like a burden sometimes, I think. And so the question that I want us to ask and answer this morning is, why worship? Why do we worship? I think it's a good question. Why is it so important for us to gather in worship, why is it worth the effort and sacrifice, especially when there's so many other things going on in life? Everyone in here is very busy. I know that. Why is it so important to worship together? Is it just because the Bible tells us to? Which, don't get me wrong, that's a pretty good reason if the Bible tells us that. But no, I think there is so much more to it. And here's the reason why we worship. God has gone before us. We're going to unpack this statement this morning, and we're going to learn what this means. But here's what you need to know. This is why we worship. God has gone before us. And no episode in the Bible, other than the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, illustrates this point more than the Exodus. And the climax of the Exodus event is the crossing of the Red Sea. And if you're unfamiliar with this story, this is the story. I mean, if you've grown up in church, you've heard this story. You know, Israel, God's people, is enslaved in Egypt. God sees them. He sends his servant Moses, and Moses brings them up out of Egypt. Let my people go. You know, that classic line. Um, Let my people go. Israel comes out of Egypt, and then they cross the Red Sea. This is the climax event in this story. So I want us to dive into this story, and I really want us to enter into the shoes of the Israelites. I want us to consider the scene, because I feel like we hear this story so many times that the details kind of get lost. On us. So let us dive in, and we're going to look at verse 10. If you know the story, at this point, Israel has been brought out of Egypt. And I imagine they, they are excited. They've been in slavery for years. They've been abused. They've been beaten. They've been hurt. And now they're free. And so they're, they're, they're probably, you know, God is leading them by his pillar of cloud and fire. He leads them to the sea, and I imagine they're excited. They're talking, what are we going to do when we get to where God is taking us? 
I don't know, I'm going to be a farmer, I'm going to be this, that, I don't know. They're, who knows what they were talking about, but they had to have been excited, jubilant, that they were now free. But then what happens? Pharaoh pursues them. He sends his army after them. And in verse 10, we read that when Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. I can imagine the scene. They're beside the sea. They're jubilant. Life is good. And then someone looks at the horizon and they see a soldier. And then they see five. And then 20. And 50. Then 100. And then chariots. And then horses. And before you know it, there's this massive army staring them in the face with one purpose. They've come to kill them, to enslave them. And I believe Israel in that moment knows that they have no hope. If you read verses 11 and 12, they go to Moses and they say, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? They know they're facing death. They are dead. And remember, we saw in verses 6 and 7 that Pharaoh brought his entire army, every soldier. He selected his best men and then brought the rest with him. Israel has no chance. And church, here's the thing that we need to understand. Our condition as Christians, as humans, is no different than Israel. Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We are dead without Christ in our life. Without God, we are facing the army of the Egyptians, and we know that we are dead. When Julie and I lived in Birmingham, we had a bunny. I got it for her. We have another bunny now. This was our first bunny. I got it for Julie as her birthday. His name was Bonhoeffer, named after Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And uh, Bonhoeffer was really cute. He was a great bunny. We only had him for three weeks, though, because he got sick, and he died, and it was terrible. It was like, he's so cute. This is terrible. Um, So I had to take him out, and I had to bury him. But the thing I remember about it that was so sad to me was like, I can do nothing for him. He can do nothing for himself. He is dead. And he was really small. That's why I'm holding my palm out. But that's the thing. We have to understand death. When the Bible says that we are dead in our sins without God, we are dead. We are unable to do anything. It's not like we just need to go to the doctor. No, we need a mortician at that point. We are dead. The enemy army is approaching with swords drawn and there's no escape because remember, Israel is backed up against the sea. But here's the good news. God has seen our condition. And God saw Israel's condition. Thank you. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, God speaks to Moses through the burning bush after the Israelites have been crying out for help. And he says, I have seen the affliction of my people. I have seen them. So God sends his servant Moses to rescue Israel. And then God does all these signs in Egypt and let my people go. And the people come out of Egypt. And then God is present with them as they go through the desert in the pillar of cloud and fire. It's this incredible series of events. God comes to help to deliver his people from their affliction. God sees them and Moses knows this. In verses 1-4, through God tells Moses, Egypt is going to come after you, but I'm going to get victory over them. And that's why in verses 13 and 14, after Israel is freaking out and panicking, Moses is confident. Verse 13, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord 
which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians, whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Church, this is the beauty of our God. This is the beauty of the gospel. That God did not leave us dead. God did not leave Israel and Egypt. He did not leave them beside the Red Sea. He did not leave us dead. Ephesians 2, it says, but God made us alive together with Christ. So when I say that God has gone before us, I mean that God has seen our, con- our sinful condition and he has taken action to rescue us from it. He does not leave us in our sins. God's love is clearly seen in this truth. God has not left us to die. He has come to let us live. He did not leave Israel in Egypt. No, he sent his servant Moses. And he sends his servant Jesus to you and me. God came to rescue us. And remember, this is nothing that you or I can do. Why? Because we are dead without God. Only he can see our condition and rescue us. And so God shows up. God comes. And he does battle with the Egyptians. I love this scene. First, he gives instructions to Moses in verses 15b and 16. He says, tell the people of Israel to go forward into the sea, which can, he hasn't spread the sea yet, so you can imagine they're kind of like, what? Go into the sea? Um, but then he, verse 16, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So he tells Moses, Spread your hands, I'm going to lift up the sea. And God does. He sends a mighty wind, it says. Can you imagine how loud of a wind it takes to divide a sea? That's how he divides it. He sends a wind. That's got to be like 20 tornadoes in one. I don't know. So there's this loud noise, and the sea is dividing. The waves are crashing, but they're making walls. And then at the same time, God goes with his pillar of cloud and fire, and he blocks the Egyptians See that in verses 19 and 20. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. So all night, Israel is passing through this sea, and you have to imagine there's hope, there's excitement. Look, God is fighting for us. There's this pillar of fire that is lighting up the night and the sea is split and the wind is blowing. So the people are excited. There's hope again. And they're running through and they're running through. There's hope. But then, God allows the Egyptians to pursue Israel through the sea. Verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And I think there's a moment of confusion here for Israel. What are you doing, God? You just saved us, but now do you want us to die on the other side of the sea? Because now the Egyptians are running through the sea, and they can probably see them coming. I think there's a moment of confusion. Now, I enjoy watching movies, and I'm a big fan of fantasy-type movies, like movies that kind of climax in big battle scenes. And one of my favorites, books and movies, is Lord of the Rings. And if you're not familiar with Lord of the Rings, it's a fantasy story. It was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, turned into some movies by Peter Jackson, uh, won a whole bunch of Oscars. Um, but it's a story about, among many things, it's a story about good versus evil. There's good and evil in the world, and they collide. 
And Julie, my wife, makes fun of me because there's one scene in Lord of the Rings, it's my favorite scene ever in any movie, but there's one scene that every time I watch it, I cry. Not like ball, but I get a manly tear. And it, it makes me cry a little bit. Julie makes fun of me, but two reasons why. One, it's a beautiful piece of cinematography. And it's actually, it's the, it's the scene that Peter Jackson called his proudest, like is the thing he was most proud of in the trilogy. But the main reason, reason is this. It comes at a time in the story, it's a climactic event, it comes at a time when all hope is lost. Just kind of like Israel, they see the Egyptians coming, all hope is lost again. And in the story, all hope is lost. And in, in the story, the evil Lord Sauron in the world of Lord of the Rings, he has laid siege to the city of Minas Tirith, which is like the city that stood for everything that is good and right in the world. And it was supposed to be the impenetrable city, the thing that would never fall. But Sauron's army has besieged it. They've broken down the gates. It's on fire. It's being, all the people inside are being killed. And it's, it's this sad, terrible moment because you think, Where, where's the hope? But then something happens. The plains outside the city are called Pelennor Fields, and on the edge, across the plains, you didn't know I knew all these nerdy terms, did you? Um, but across the plains, there's this horn that resounds. At first, you don't see anything. But then you see on the crest of the hills to the north of the city, horses start appearing. And what has happened is the neighbor of Gondor, the good guys, Rohan has sent aid. They've sent their army. And they appear on this hill, thousands of them, mounted horses. And they look down, and the city is being besieged. The, the army of Sauron is there. And at first, Sauron's army is super, you know, oh, we can handle this, no big deal. And so they, they, they line up, they get ready to fight, and they wait for the horses to come in, the, the mounted riders. And the king of Rohan gives a speech to his, it's a really good speech, I'm not going to say it here. I can't reenact it very well. He gives a great speech, but then the horses charge. And again, at first, the evil orcs of Sauron are confident. We're going to slaughter these guys. We're fine. But then the horses get closer, and the ground starts shaking. And the noise starts thundering. And the shouts of the men overwhelm them. And the orcs start looking at each other like, like I think we're on the wrong side. And just when they're just thrown into a massive panic, Rohan just sweeps through them and totally destroys them. And what I love about this scene, and why it makes me emotional, is because it's good triumphing over evil. When it looked like evil was going to win, good comes in and wins. Now, why do I tell you this story? Why do I spend so much time telling you that? Because I want you to know that God has gone before us. And God has defeated our enemy. Good has won. There's a moment when the Egyptians are pursuing the Israelites through the sea. And all of a sudden, their chariot God clogs their chariot wheels and he throws them into a panic. And they realize it. They realize it in verse 25 that they are on the wrong side. Verse 25, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them. It's like they're the orcs in the Lord of the Rings and they realize we are on the wrong side of this. We should not have come into this sea. And in that moment, God just destroys them. He doesn't just defeat them. He destroys them. The waters cave back in. He has Moses stick his hands out again. And God pulls the wind back. The, the waves crush, crush the Egyptians. Verse 27, it says, The Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. In verse 28, 
we read, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Israel's enemy was defeated. And church, the same is true of our enemy. We have an enemy. His name is Satan. He is the devil. He is a liar. Our God is good, but you cannot have good without bad. We have an enemy, but the most important thing you need to know about him is this, is that he has been defeated. Hebrews 2, 14-15 says, He himself likewise partook of the same things, talking about Jesus becoming human, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Church, Christians, you and I were enslaved to sin and death. Death was the weapon of our enemy, the devil. It was the thing he lorded over us. The destiny we couldn't control. The fear, the thing that made us fear at night. But through Christ's death, that weapon, the thing that separated us from God, death and sin, that weapon has been defeated along with the one wielding it. They have been thrown into the sea. And so we can say, as Paul does in, the letter, in his letter to Philippians, whether I live or die, it is life with God. Even if the worst thing that happens to us in this world that can happen, death happens to us, it is eternal life for us in Christ. Amen. So God has defeated our enemy. Our enemy has been cast into the sea. So not only has God gone before us and seen our condition, he has defeated our enemy, and even further, God has saved us. Verses 29 and 30. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel passed through the sea on dry ground. Church, because of our sinful condition, because of our enemy, there was distance between us and God. There was a gap, a chasm, a sea, if you will, that we could not bridge ourselves because of our sin. Only God could bridge it, and he did. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God himself became the bridge for our salvation. He sent his servant Jesus to bear our sins so that we would have life eternal. Consider it this way. By the spreading of one man's hands, Moses, the seas were divided and Israel was saved. But later, by the spreading of one man's hands upon a cross, mankind's sin was atoned for. And you and I were given freedom and we were saved. Our salvation church is no less epic than the events of the Exodus. God has gone before us in Jesus. He has seen our condition. He has defeated our enemy and he has saved us. So again, I ask you, why do we worship? The better question is, how can we not worship? How can we not gather together and praise the name of of Jesus, How can we not speak of him in our homes and workplaces? How can we not lift our voices to the one who has redeemed us from slavery? Notice how Israel responds. 
beside the sea. Verse 31, they feared and believed. And I think it's interesting, you have to remember that the sea has just collapsed. So in front of them are the dead bodies of this Egyptian army and the debris of the chariots. They see what God has done, that he has saved them. And in chapter 15, verses, verse 1, we read this. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang. They sang a song. And if you would, sometime this week, go reach the song they sing in chapter 15. It's incredible. But they sing. They worship God next to the sea of victory. And when we worship church, when we gather together or we're at home, when, when, when we worship, we worship by the sea of victory. Except instead of a sea, in our case, it's a cross and an empty tomb. We worship by the sea of victory. Now, I know that it is not always easy to worship. Some of you came in this morning, and you're pumped. You're excited. I'm ready to worship Jesus. I'm going to clap and shout and whoo and all that. Some maybe, maybe. I'm not that style personally. But some of you arrived, and you're excited to be here. You're ready to worship Jesus. Some of you arrived this morning, and I would guess you are annoyed or angry. Maybe someone cut you off while you were driving here, and you're still just kind of like, <clears throat> you know, you got that, got that feeling. Maybe one of your kids threw up in the back seat. Maybe on another one of your kids. So you had to clean that up. Maybe you and your spouse had an argument on your way to church this morning. Maybe getting to church was the cause of the argument. Some of you arrived this morning and you are struggling. You're asking the question, how can I worship God when my life is a mess and falling apart? There's nothing good happening. How can I worship God right now? I'm just suffering. Some of you were dragged here by your parents. You didn't want to come, but they made you. And some of you may not even know why you're here. You've just always gone. Church has been the thing you do on a Sunday, so you came. In all these categories, we can ask the same question. Why, do, why should I make the effort? Why should I be here? Why worship? I have three reasons for you. Number one, worship reminds you of God's love. In Israel's song of response to God after the Exodus, this is what they sing in verse, verse, chapter 15, verse 13. They sing about God's love. They say, You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. So for Israel, the Exodus told them everything they needed to know about God. It told them that God loves them, and so they worshiped them. And when they would worship them throughout the Old Testament, or when God would reveal himself to people, he would reveal himself as the God who brought you out of Egypt. And so when Israel would worship They'd be reminded of who God is, that God loves them, that God fights for them. I love the Old Testament because the whole Bible shows us that God loves us. I think the Old Testament shows a little bit more of God's throwdown side. Like he loves us and he's willing to throw down for his people. Throughout the Old Testament, God identifies identifies himself to Israel by the Exodus, and that's how they worship him, the God who brought us out of Egypt. You know, we have a tendency to forget things. We're humans. We're fallible. We mess up. Um, when Julie and I moved here from Birmingham a year ago, we were at the bank getting all our accounts switched over. And, you know, all that fun stuff you have to do. And uh, I was talking to the teller. Julie was on the phone over here. And the teller asked me, hey, what's Julie's birthday? And I forgot. And I remember Julie going, <laughs> looking at me like that. Now, it's August 13th. I know it. But, um, and Julie wasn't really mad. But the point is, we forget things, things that we should know all the time. Todd and I were having a discussion before 
service, and I, he asked me to do something, and I forgot to do it right before service. It's like five minutes went by. I mean, we forget things that are important. You know, you know, and I've heard it gets worse with age. I don't know, maybe. We'll get there. But we need to be reminded regularly of God's love. We need to be reminded of our exodus, that God has brought us, he's gone before us and brought us out of slavery. He's seen our condition and defeated our enemy on the cross so that he could save us. He took the bullet you deserved, killed your enemy, and rescued you. Why? Because he loves you. Church, hear this. This is hard to swallow sometimes for me. God does not need you. God does not need me. God does not need this earth. If he wanted to have, if, you know, if after Adam and Eve's sin, they messed up, he could have just thrown it away right there. After Israel sinned later, he could have thrown it away. After we sinned, he could throw it away. But he doesn't. Why? Because of love. Somehow our great and powerful mighty God loves us. He wants us. He wants to know us and us to know him. And this is what some of you need to hear this morning. You need to hear that you are loved. Maybe you've been told that you're unworthy of love, that no one will ever want you. God wants you. He parted the seas for you so that you could walk with him. Maybe at work or at home you feel alone and you just want to know there's someone who cares about you and knows you. God does. He hurled the enemy into the sea for you so that you would not be divided from him, so that you could be with him. So we all need to worship because worship reminds us of God's love for us. And when we join together, or we worship at home, or we worship here, when we join together and we celebrate the cross, the gospel, we are reminded of God's love. So that's the first thing. That's the first reason why worship is so important. It reminds us of God's love. The second thing is this. Worship gives you hope. Excuse me. Worship gives you hope. Hope is something that all of us need. Maybe in different amounts, but we all need it. Some of you need hope this morning. Like I mentioned, for some of you, life is not going well right now. You might be wondering if life is worth living. You might be suffering with an illness. You might be hurting. Or maybe someone close to you is hurting, and you're bearing that weight, and you're just, you need to know that things are going to get better. And I think all of us, either for seasons of life or for long seasons of life, we have those times where we need to know things are going to get better. All of us need hope, and all of us need hope for this earth. Julie and I were in Tennessee a couple weeks ago. Uh, my in-laws recently got back. They adopted a 10-year-old girl from China named Mia. She is amazing. She's fun. She's hilarious. She cares for people so much. She's definitely an extrovert. She loves to just talk, 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 talk. And she loves to talk to anyone, strangers, which is funny because she'll run up to them, and she doesn't speak barely any English. So she'll, like, be talking to them, and we have to run up with Google Translate and, like, figure out what she's trying to say to them. But uh, so we went out and we helped babysit and stuff for the first few days she was there. And uh, the one thing that Mia said through Google Translate over and over and over again, thank God for Google Translate, she kept saying, I'm so glad to be adopted. I'm so glad. And that's because in China, at least in the area where she is, kids who turn 14, Mia's 10, kids who turn 14 are kicked out of the orphanage and they're, they're put on the street. And sometimes, sometimes they can like find work in the orphanage and they can stay longer, but the typical case is that they are removed, kicked out. 
And Mia was one of hundreds of thousands of orphans just in China. And as Julie and I realized that, we just we had a moment of sorrow. Like, where's the hope in that? And this earth has other problems, poverty, injustice, environmental issues. You could go on. The point is, when we look at this world without the lens of an Instagram filter, we see that, there, that it needs hope. In church, our hope for our personal life, for the things happening in our life, for the, for the world, is this, is that God has gone before us. Just like he brought God, brought the Israelites into the promised land, he is bringing the new creation, us into the new creation. And this is a land where orphans will not exist, a land where poverty and hunger and abuse and anxiety and sickness and addiction and injustice and death and disability and war and pain and hurt will not exist. This is a land where evil and all the effects of it have been cast into the sea where they will be seen no more because the enemy has been defeated. And so as we come together and we worship, not only are we reminded of God's love for us, but also the hope he has given us that one day, maybe not in our lifetime, we might suffer in our lifetime, but one day things will get better. And then we go out and we bring that hope to the world. And as we go out and we love people and we feed the hungry and we fight for justice, we bring the new creation with God. See, church, worship allows you to look at the world and not despair. It allows you to look at the world and have hope. It reminds us of that. When Israel needed hope later after the Exodus, they remembered the Exodus. So lastly, so, okay, worship reminds us of God's love. It gives you hope. Number three, worship calls you to obedience. This is the tough one. Notice how Israel responds after God defeats the Egyptians. Chapter 14, verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, excuse me, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The people feared the Lord. Israel saw who God is. They saw what God does, and then they humbled themselves before him. They exchanged their will for his. They obeyed out of reverence. You know, it says they feared. That doesn't mean they were sitting there like, ah, God, don't, eh. although I might do that after witnessing what they, what they just witnessed. But it just means that they were reverent. They saw, okay, God is loving. God is intimate. God cares about us. God is also willing to throw an army into the sea if he sees fit. So they obeyed out of reverence. And I think consciously or subconsciously, I think we all know that if we commit to worship, if we commit to the church, if we commit to being a member of this church, this body of believers, we know it will change us. That, it will, that God will work through that and change in our lives. And I think that can present a problem because we don't always like or want change in our lives. Sometimes we don't want to be pulled out of our comfort zone. We want to stay where we are. And the result is we may come to church, but we don't worship. We distance ourselves. And thoughts may be something like this. If I engage too much, then I'm going to get hooked in and I'm going to have to make sacrifices. I'm going to have to sacrifice my time, my energy. I'm going to have to trade my will for God's will. Same is going to knock on my door and ask me to teach the children. I won't knock on your door, by the way. I might ask you to teach, but I won't knock on your door. 
And the thing is, you can think those things. You can sit here week after week and not sing. You cannot talk to anyone. You can slip in, slip out. You can keep yourself at a distance. You cannot join a small group. You cannot find a place to serve. You cannot give. You cannot mention Jesus' name from the time you leave here until next Sunday morning. But that would be foolish. A life of worship, a life of obedience is the life you desperately need. It's the life I desperately need. Israel needed to be rescued. They needed the life that God gives. They needed God's grace. You need that life and grace too. And it is found only in a lifestyle. I love that Hayden said lifestyle. A lifestyle of worship of Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of my heroes, he was a German pastor, theologian, martyr around the time of World War II, he said that the fellowship we as Christians experience, this room, the life of worship we live together is nothing less than a gift of grace from God. And Bonhoeffer would know, because if you know anything about Bonhoeffer, you know that he was a pastor in Germany when the German church was kind of overruled by the Nazis and it became Nazi propaganda. And he was one of the few Christian, Christians and pastors, not a few Christians, but few pastors who remained faithful to the gospel. And he formed illegal seminaries. But the thing that he experienced was he could not regularly meet with people openly, Christians. And this is what he says in his book, Life Together. He says, It is true, of course, that what is an unspeakable gift of God for the lonely individual is easily disregarded and trodden underfoot by those who have the gift every day. It is easily forgotten that the fellowship of Christian brethren is a gift of grace, a gift of the kingdom of God that any day may be taken from us. Therefore, let him who until now has had the privilege of living a common Christian life with other Christians, praise God's grace from the bottom of his heart. Let him thank God on his knees and declare it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brethren. Amen. So church, I ask you, would you really deny God's gift of grace by not worshiping together? You've now heard the why of worship. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about the what and the how. What is worship, more specifically? We've kind of talked about it today. We'll go deeper, and we'll talk about the how of worship, because worship is not just in this room. It's much more than that, and we're going to talk about that. It's much more individual, it's corporate, and there's a lot of things to it. We'll talk about that next week. But before I close, I just want to say, if you are not a Christian, if you have not accepted Christ, if you have never placed your faith in him, I know that he, know this, know that God has gone before you. He has parted the sea. He's made a way for you to have life with him, the life that we as all, all Christians in here enjoy. And if you are interested, you have questions, you want to talk, I would love to talk with you about that, or me, or Hayden. Um, please find me after the service if you'd like to talk about that. But church, let me leave you with this. God has gone before you. He has seen your condition. He has defeated your enemy. He has saved you. How will you respond? Like Israel with faith and worship? Or like Egypt with hard hearts? My hope and prayer is that all of us together will pour out our lives in worship. So we're going to start with that now. We're about to sing again. Sing for he is worthy. And then worship him this week in your daily lives. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it teaches us. It grows us. It challenges us. It pushes us. Father, we thank you that you are the God who has gone before us. You did not leave us in our sin facing death. But you brought us to life. You defeated our enemy. You saved us. 
Father, we are so thankful for the community that we have in this room. We know that it is not just because we're a whole bunch of good people, but this is a gift of grace to us, God. Thank you for giving it to us. Father, I pray now that we can worship you in spirit and truth, that our hearts would be submitted to you, that we would remember your love and your hope this week. In your name we pray.